See, this is my pallet, really. I don't have a walk around with a pallet. I always work off a table. What I'm doing right now is a series of around about seven or eight paintings in the style of Renoir. He started his career painting decorative patterns on, on pottery. And you can see, you know, bits of that in his early work. And I need a flesh colour. Van Gogh very rarely knew what he was going to end up with when he started. Monet stood back much more. That's mixing up nicely. Cezanne was really thinking about how he saw what he was looking at, which I like. If you can't relate to the artist that you're dealing with, as it were, then there's no point in doing it. You can't do it, actually. I'm a tribute band. I admire very much, love the Matisse and the Cezanne and the Van Gogh and the Monet. I love them. But when you go and see the Rolling Beatles or whatever they are, you know you're not looking at John, George, Paul and Ringo, but you kid yourself that you are. There's Ringo on the drums, there's the George Harrison playing the guitar. Well, people who are doing that do it out of love for the Beatles and the kind of music they did and the world they came from. And I do it out of love for the artists that I have this rapprochement with. My name is John Myatt. I live in Staffordshire and I have a company called Genuine Fakes Limited. And I produce paintings in the style of different artists of any kind. Hostility, when it comes, usually comes from inside of the art establishment. The only recent example I can give you was when my wife Rosemary and I were invited over to San Diego. I was asked to do a presentation at the museum and one of the curators said we can't have him. But on the other hand, I have been embraced by the art establishment. I'm wheeled out three or four times a year now on all the big universities. I think I am thought of as a kind of safe pair of hands, if you like. Someone who used to be a criminal, but now isn't, and someone, in my case, who regrets the criminal activity. They say, oh, you're the greatest art forger of the 20th century. I say, of course I'm the greatest art forger of the 20th century is dining off gold plate in Le Mans or something, and no one will ever catch him. I feel that forgers are basically a shabby lot of people. It's just another form of theft, really. But do forgers have a market? I mean, is there such thing as a forgery that's worth money because it's cleverly done? Yes. My name is Philip Mould. I am an art dealer based in London, where I have a gallery specialising in about 500 years of British art. I'm also a writer and broadcaster on the subject of art. People need to know that the, the painting cannot be by somebody else or a copy. As value is attached to the certainty of, of the artist's identity. So a, a Van Gogh is going to be worth sometimes a hundred thousand times more than something 
that's not by Van Gogh but painted at the same time. So authenticity is indivisible from, from valuation in the art world. There have been forgers in history who have established, because of the technical brilliance of their forgeries, a, a following. And it doesn't take much in the art world. Sometimes, you know, celebrity of any form can uh, result in, in people wanting to buy a work of art by that person. I always wanted to be an artist. I spent my childhood drawing. I was an only child, and it kept me quiet for ages. And then I used to compose songs. I used to go into the piano. So I figured in my na naivety that I would get into the music business and write a string of number one hits and then spend the rest of my life in an art studio. So I sent a tape off to Denmark Street in London, which in those days was a hub of the music industry. And I, I got a deal. Ended up going down to London, living in London. We had a studio in Dalston. I loved it. They did know that I was a painter. And one day, Dick Leahy, who ran the company, had had dinner with Sir Marcus and Lady Seif, who owned Marks and Spencers at the time. And they had two small paintings by Raoul Dufy. Dick wanted two paintings to match the ones that he'd seen. And he said, John, can you do this for me? I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll have a go. So we made sure that Dufy's eye did were bigger than the ones that he'd actually seen at Sir Marcus Seif's. And then there was a return invitation for dinner and, you know, as Sir Marcus and Lady Seif came in, they saw two Dufy's which were bigger than their Dufy's. <laughs> and they weren't very good looking back on them, but they did the job. Years later, after I was married and left London, my wife left and I had two little babies to look after. It really became important to have an income stream and also remain at home and take care of those two children. So I put this advert into Private Eye magazine, genuine fakes from, I think it was 150 or maybe 250 pounds, anything, you know, 18th, 19th century paintings, you choose and whatever. And a whole lot of work came in on the back of that advert, a whole lot of it. And that was enough to keep us going. Um, so this is an interesting one. I mean, again, just up here, you know, at a, can you see that? If you look at a Roy Lichtenstein, but Rosemary did all those dots with a grid. And um, that's a well-known Lichtenstein. And I'd been running Genuine Fakes business for around about 18 months, two years. It was a success. And I got a phone call from a man in London who... Uh, introduced himself as Professor John Drew, who wanted a copy of a painting by Henri Matisse uh, called The Black Door. And when I'd finished the painting, I called him up and said, well, I'm catching the train from Stafford to Houston. And at the top of the stairs as you walked up, there he was in his camel hair coat and everything. Lovely guy, very interesting. And I liked him. The difference between John and probably most of the customers he just kept on coming back for more paintings. Over a two-year period, he probably had about 14 or 15 paintings. And in the end, of course, he ran out of ideas and he actually said, what would you like to paint? And I thought, well, this is really, really strange. So I, I thought, well, I, I do enjoy painting Cubist paintings. I'll have a crack at this portrait of an army doctor by a Frenchman called Albert Clay's little-known Cubist. 
and he paid me £250 for it. And he called me up one day and he said, you know that Cubist painting you've done for me? I've just had a valuation from Christie's in writing that it's worth £25,000. How would you like £12,500 in cash if I can sell it? So there I was with £12,500 in a brown envelope. It turned into a crime at that point. That then went on to uh, six or seven years of intense art fraud. Hi, this is our, where, our laboratory building. You want me to go ahead here? Yeah. I am Dr. Jeffrey Taylor. I am Tiago Pivovarczyk. Yeah, we got a great view of the Queen's skyline. And we're from New York Art Forensics. And we use science to detect forgery in art. You can actually see the Chrysler building way off in the distance on the left side. In the art world, there's a huge crisis in the problem of art forgery. And also in simply establishing correct identifications of who made an artwork. They say, don't they, a picture's worth a thousand words, but in the art world, you're also talking, of course, millions of dollars, too, if it's the genuine article. Attribution is the establishment of who is the author of this art object. Is this by a certain famous master? Or is it by someone else? A painting of Jesus Christ by Leonardo da Vinci has become the most expensive artwork to be sold at auction. The, the most elite, we might say, canonical artists, the ones who are well-known to everybody, they have limited bodies of work, and those works are very expensive. There aren't many Leonardos on the market, um, so I suppose when one does come up, there's a fair bit of competition. Therefore, establishing the attribution of an artwork, especially if it is or is not by a certain famous master, will have a lot to do with how much it's worth. I think it's a real flim-flam. I think that if you really look at this painting, Leonardo never painted anyone remotely like this, never anybody looking dead on, Never anybody, never a surface this dull, inert, a mess. Attribution should be established by using an intellectual structure that we can describe as being like a three-legged stool. We're examining three different features about the artwork. One is what we call a style critique and looking at if the artwork, a painting, for example, has the styles and characteristics of the artist we're considering as the author of the artwork. If you take any artist, let's just say Cezanne, okay? If you do an exact copy of an existing Cezanne painting, then it's an exact copy of something that's already out there, isn't it? So it can't be Cezanne, because the original is already hanging on the walls in France, Austria, New Zealand, wherever. So copies are out of it. You have to do something in the style of Cezanne. That's a Cezanne. Isn't that the most beautiful thing? I did it for the movie, and I used fluorescent colours here, just so the camera just goes over it very quickly, and the colours just go... You know, you get a bit of a hit from the colour. So the skill of it would be to find out what Cezanne was trying to do to get inside his head and to, and to look at 
the itinerary of things that he had, the trees, the apples, the oranges, the still lives, th that kind of thing. And I'm thinking of the vases and the jugs. For me, it's just like a bark fugue or something, the way the colours work and are resonated here. All the colours speak to each other um, in, over a and to use those, but to rearrange them, put them in a different shape, put them in a different light, put them on a different table, but a table that again would reference to another Cezanne painting and make a new Cezanne watercolour or painting. Until you get to the kind of high point of a red here and then working down through other reds, you get to the same colour but mixed, blended with the green, so you knock the redness out of it, whites and blacks. It's, it's the most technical. It's like that kid who... Fugal takes the clock to bits, puts it back together and then finds half a dozen pieces on the table. That's, that's what happens to me. I never get it completely right. We also study its provenance, which is the history of where an art object has been from when it was made to who owned it, to whom they sold it to and where it's been exhibited. Why could we possibly believe that it is by this certain master? And... A good forger has to have a good knowledge of how the art market works. John Drew discovered, having sold the small Cubist painting, that by and large, if you present yourself at an auction house with any painting, you have to have some kind of history, what they call provenance, with that item to justify its authenticity. He donated money to the Tate Gallery and the Victorian Albert Museum and actually went into their archives and took old-fashioned photographs of my paintings and put them into the archive. And that then, when a researcher went to look for those paintings, the researcher found a copy of the paintings which actually kind of justified them. I didn't do any of the dis distressing, but uh, John Drew would empty the vacuum cleaner over the back of a painting was one, I remember that one, um, and black coffee over the front of it and so on. It's all simple stuff. If you're doing forgeries, and let's call these forgeries and not fakes, then the back of the painting is as important as the front. So, you know, there will be stickers on the back and there will be maybe a previous owner will have written their name and address and uh, that was John's job. He dealt with all that and did it very well, actually. The third part, which is what New York Art Forensics specializes in, is the material scientific analysis of the art object. And that allows us to determine whether it's really correct and appropriate to the artist and that artist's time period. Tiago is a criminal forensic scientist, and his background is in the testing of materials to determine what they are. The examination usually starts with photographic analysis, with infrared photography, ultraviolet photography, regular photography, of course and a good observation under a stereoscopic microscope where we will see the details up and close and cracks and crackalures and 
and the debris and, and tool marks. And then we start selecting um, the points where we think there is relevant for us to do chemical analysis if necessary. This is ancient, but it works. Here you have a laser. This mirror bounces the laser inside pigments and and dyes and colorants can tell us a lot of about the the time and place where uh, an object was manufactured because we know that certain pigments are only patented on a given date um, if we find uh, cyanine blue pigment in a painting that's supposed to be from the 19th century, that is a problem because the cyanine blue pigments were only available on the 20th century. So finding those anachronistic materials can define if a painting have materials that should not be there. What surprised me and still surprises me, even today, is that they, they weren't done in oil paint. They were done in paint that you paint the walls with. House paint, thickened with polymers, thinned with KY jelly. And um, it got to the point, really, when I, I did think, this is, this is so bizarre. KY jelly, for God's sake. The crime, as such, was basically discovered by poor old Bathsheba, who was uh, John's wife. She had a real hard time with him. And in the end, he left her. But it ended up with her going into his office and bundling up all the paperwork that he'd left behind and took it to Golders Green Police Station and like three or four black plastic bags and dumped them on the counter and said, you need to look at all this. Of course, they didn't. They just thought she was as mad as a hatter. But eventually they did look at it and called up the Arts and Antiques in Scotland Yard and said, you guys can look at all this because way out of our league. They spent around about four or five months unravelling it all. And at that point, they found names and addresses in that paperwork of which one was mine. They came and searched my house. They, they left John Drew to the very last, funnily enough. And then they arrested him and then charged us both. Conspiracy to defraud the art establishment was the actual charge. I got sentenced to 12 months I was in Brixton prison for four months and then they offered me home detention curfew and you come out with a little tag round your leg. Um, there's one in there somewhere. Oh, look, it's here. That's, this is covered up, but that's, that's the view out of my window in Brixton. You're looking from E-wing across to reception and then C-wing... Uh, which is where they keep all the baddies, real baddies, is on your right. Uh, and that I was fascinated by the galvanised kind of uh, chimneys and stuff. So I didn't have much, much else to do, so I just did a detailed drawing and turned it into a painting when I got back. I didn't come across any other art fraud <coughs> people, but there were oh, a selection of um, lawyers, um, what else, accountants, those kind of people, sort of, your, you know, your middle-class types. I was a D category. D category is um, unlikely to escape, and if he does escape, no harm to the public. I've always painted until 
The day after I came out of prison, when I'd gone down to the job centre and they said, there's a job down at the garden centre, down the way from you, you can get a job. And I was about to go down to the garden centre to apply for that job when the phone rang and it was Jonathan Searle, the policeman who'd arrested me on the phone. And he'd said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm off down to the garden centre. And he said, ridiculous, you can paint, you have an ability. He said, I'll commission you, do my family portrait. And there we are. That was it. I was painting. And then we had a show in London and we sold everything and met Glyn Washington from Washington Green Fine Art and I've worked with them ever since. With VAT registered, we pay corporation tax. It's still Genuine Effects Limited. We approach a painting with a very sober cold stone scientific rationalist approach and that can be very different than the way the client has approached the painting because perhaps they consider it this fabulous discovery and have become very emotionally almost romantically attached to the idea that this artwork is by this certain famous master and sadly most of our jobs often end up with bad news for the client, that the artwork isn't what they were wishing it was. It's a very common event for us, but also is statistically biased. When people come to us, they already have an issue, a problem, a doubt. There is a circumstance that make the object more inclined to be problematic. We come across forgeries all the time, and increasingly online as well. A lot of 20th century uh, paintings and drawings that you see in uh, major online auction sites are suspect in some sense or form. And it would be fair to say, I think up to about 70% of, of what you see in, on auction sites may be misrepresented in some way. that pretty much where I want it but I didn't like the way well I, I wasn't I wasn't that happy with this hand being so low down I thought that was a bit strange uh, so I raised the arm up here and buried it in in the hair rather than just what I'm doing is making inaccessible art more accessible you and I and your family will never, ever be able to afford to buy a work by Monet, Cezanne or Picasso. So a painting which is one of my paintings, a genuine fake, kind of empowers you to say, oh, I don't like that because it wouldn't go with the curtains. You couldn't possibly say that about a Cezanne or a, a Monet or a Braque or a, you know, anything. You couldn't say that because you're looking at money. You know you're not looking at a Renoir and you're probably aware that this isn't a Renoir. Although I will sign it, um, Renoir. Like, I think I've signed this one down here. Um, people like fake paintings because they just want it to go back to, here's a picture, do you like it? Yes or no? This episode of State of the Arts was brought to you by Selfridges Broadcast Channel Hot Air. It was a Radio Wolfgang production. 
and featured John Myatt, Jeff Taylor and Tiago Pivovarczyk from New York Art Forensics and Philip Mould. The sound recordist in New York was Daniel Waldorf. The producers were El Scott and Holly Aquilina. The sound designer was Ivor Manley and the executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. To find out more about Selfridges' state-of-the-arts campaign, visit www.selfridges.com forward slash state-of-the-arts. the arts